Good afternoon, everyone. Does the Bible teach the earth is flat? Does the Bible teach that the universe was created 6,000 years ago? Did living physical creatures come to exist through a process of gradual Darwinian evolution, or do they exist through acts of special creation? Did God create the earth and the universe out of nothing? Was the Genesis account of creation derived from ancient Babylonian mythologies? All these claims, along with many others, have been made. It's important that we understand what the Bible really says about how and when the universe came to exist, how life came to exist, about the nature of the physical universe, physical life, and the purpose of physical creation. These issues are critical to a proper understanding of and appreciation for the revelation of God. It's been said that the Bible is not a textbook on science in the modern sense of the word. Actually, the Bible reveals more touching on natural science, natural history, and natural philosophy than most people realize or even imagine. All but a few are more or less completely unaware of what the Bible does teach about the nature of the world and the universe. There are many misconceptions about what the Bible teaches. There are those who have sought to ridicule and discredit the scriptures in the name of science. At the same time, people have been led to believe by some theologians, some scholars and Bible critics that the Bible teaches gross errors and nonsensical falsehoods about nature and natural history. As a result, there are a number of popular but very warped and erroneous ideas about what the Bible does say in the realm of science and natural history. The best way to find out what the Bible really says about creation and its purpose, the best way to find out if the Bible really does teach superstitious nonsense is to look into it for yourself with a mind open to the truth. And today we're going to discuss the first chapter of Genesis to help us do that. And some may be surprised about what Genesis 1 does say and what it doesn't say. So let's take a look at the book of Genesis here, beginning with the first verse of chapter 1. And here it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. This is from the New King James translation. The name of this book, as it is in the New King James and other translations, other English translations, is Genesis, and that is from that title is from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis is a Greek word which means generation or creation. And so this book is the creation of, or, or the origins. It is about origins, and that includes the origin of the cosmos, the world, the universe. The Hebrew title for Genesis is simply taken from the first word in the Hebrew, which is beginning. 
And so the title for the book in Hebrew is Beginning. And again, implies that it is dealing with origins. And not just the origin of the universe, but there are other subjects discussed in the book of Genesis that have to do with the origin of mankind, the origin of the people of Israel, and so forth. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The word here used for God is Elohim, the Hebrew word, which is the exclusive name used of God in this chapter. And the use of this particular word in relation to God implies God's relationship to his creation as its creator. And another common name used of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, which is used in connection with the covenant relationship between God and his people. Another way of saying it is that Elohim is the name of God as the universal God of all creation, including all of mankind. Yahweh is the name of God as the covenant God of Israel. El means mighty one or omnipotent. And Elohim is the plural of El. So this word used here is a plural word. And most theologians and biblical scholars have failed to recognize the significance of the plural or have misunderstood its significance and have treated its word as a singular. Some scholars claim that this is a sort of a magisterial we and it is really speaking were intended to be taken as singular. But really the use of the plural is deliberate, showing that more than one personality was involved in the creation. It's interesting that although the plural of Elohim is used here, that the verbs used in Genesis 1 verse 1 are singular. So the word Elohim corresponds to the fact that God is a family and there is only one God family. When we talk about there being only one God, what, what, what the Bible really teaches is that there is only one Godhead or one God family. But Elohim is a compound unity, just as a family is a compound unity. You can have one family with multiple persons in that family, and they all share the same name. This is very common among human beings. Very likely, you, as an individual, share your name with others in your family. And you understand that if you have a family with a husband and a wife and children that they all belong to the same family they're of that one family unit but they are separate and distinct individuals and so we see that the same is true of God as he is revealed in the scriptures notice here in verse 26 of Genesis 1 it says God said let us make man in our image 
Notice he says in our image. Not in my image, but in our image. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he says, let them, the man that was made after God's image, is not he but them. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle and all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when God created mankind in his own image, he created them male and female. He created them a family. He created mankind of multiple individuals in a family relationship reflecting his, his own nature. Notice in John chapter 1 and verse 1, John 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, now in Genesis 1 we also read these words, In the beginning, and that God created the heavens and the earth. Here it says, John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here are clearly implied two persons, at least, who were God. The Word was with God. You don't normally speak of you being with yourself. He was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So the, the God who created the universe was the God that's being spoken of here, but there was an individual member of that Godhead who, who did the actual work of creation. In verse 10 of John 1, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's the one who actually did the creative work. And the world did not know him. In verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So here is the word and the Father. Two individuals who are God. This is what the Bible reveals about the nature of God. In the New Testament especially, we read about Jesus referring to his Father, who is God. And he, his Son, as we just read, he is the only begotten of the Father. In Ephesians 3 and verse 8, Paul is writing here and he says to me who am less than the least of all the saints this is Ephesians 3 and verse 8 this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ 
Notice that God created all things through Jesus Christ, as we read also in John 1. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. So we see God specifically referred to here as a family. And the whole family is named after the Father. God has a family. God is a family. That's what God is. And currently, what we find in the Bible revealed is that there are two members of that family who are fully God at this time, who are immortal spirit beings. Others are being added to the family. And in a sense, if we have received the Holy Spirit, we too are members of the family of God, not in the fullest sense as we will be later in the resurrection if we are privileged to be in the resurrection, but we are nevertheless already counted as members of the family of God. It was commonly assumed by some ancient philosophers that the universe is eternal and unchanging. And curiously, this became dogma in the Catholic Church during the Middle Ages. It was assumed that the universe is eternal and unchanging. And they got this idea from ancient pagan philosophy, particularly Greek philosophy. And, and this was a firm dogma teaching of the church, the Catholic church during the Middle Ages, that the universe is eternal and unchanging. And yet, here we read in verse 1 of Genesis 1 that the universe had a beginning says God created the heavens and the earth. So the idea that the universe is eternal is directly contrary to what the Bible itself clearly says. Observational evidence shows that as the Bible has taught for thousands of years, the universe had a definite beginning in time. And there are a number of lines of evidence that are used to demonstrate that the universe has not eternally existed. One of those lines of evidence is the second law of thermodynamics, which was understood and given expression to by Isaac Newton. And the second law of thermodynamics implies that the universe and everything in it tends toward randomness or dissolution. And that's essentially what the second law of thermodynamics is, that everything tends toward a state of randomness. So in an eternity of time, the universe would have already dissipated into the blackness of space. If the universe is winding down, there must be some point at which it was wound up because the second law of thermodynamics implies that the universe is slowly dissolving. So there had to be a point at which it was, so to speak, wound up. British astronomer Arthur Eddington wrote, If our views are right, somewhere between the beginning of time and the present day, we must place the winding up of the universe. Somewhere between the beginning of time and the present day, we must place the winding up of the universe. 
Another related line of evidence is that radioactive elements are inherently unstable. A radioactive element is decaying into a more stable form, possibly of the same element or some different element. And various radioactive elements decay at various rates over time. If the universe were eternal, there would be no radioactive elements in existence. They would all have already decayed long ago. The fact that radioactive elements exist is evidence that the universe did not come into existence in a past that extends to infinity. It had a beginning in time. Also, the universe appears to be expanding and if the universe is expanding, there must have been a time when it began in a much more condensed and compact state. Many physicists believe that the universe began possibly 10 to 20 billion years ago as pure energy. It's theorized that only a tiny fraction of a second after the universe began, it filled less space than the nucleus of an atom. And since that time has been spreading out. Interestingly, this is exactly what God says, even in more specific terms, in terms of the universe being spread out or expanding. Notice over in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. Isaiah 40 and verse 22 says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Notice here it says that the heavens are being stretched out like a curtain. In other words, they're expanding. The universe is expanding. And this is actually stated several times in different places in the scriptures. But it was just recently discovered, just a few decades ago, by modern astronomy, that the universe is in fact expanding. Another line of evidence indicating that the universe had a definite beginning in time is the life story of the stars. Observation has led scientists to believe that stars go through life cycles, starting as clouds of gas and after several billion years ending their lives as they exhaust the gases that provide the source of thermonuclear energy, which causes stars to shine. All elements heavier than helium are believed to have formed within the stars. The proportion of hydrogen and helium to other elements in the universe is another piece of evidence that indicates a definite beginning for the universe. If the universe had a beginning, as scientific discovery and observation imply, and as the Bible also tells us, it also implies that the universe is running down and will have an end. Astrophysicist Robert Jastrow wrote, Modern science denies an eternal existence to the universe, either in the past or in the future. The Bible also tells us that the universe is temporary and that it will, at some point in the future, cease to exist. Notice over in Psalm 102 and verse 25, Psalm 102 and verse 25, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, which reflects what we read earlier in Genesis 1 and verse 1, they will perish. They will perish, it says. The earth and the heavens will perish. They're not eternal, 
and they're not unchanging. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed. Now, we read earlier that the heavens were spread out as a tent to dwell in, implying that the universe was created as a habitation for someone or something to dwell in, namely God. But the universe was created to be temporary, and it will eventually grow old and will be changed. And the implication is that there will be another universe created to take the place of the present one. But all of this is fully consistent with what is known to be true through observation. Science can confirm that the universe had a beginning and will have an end as the Bible itself teaches. But it cannot answer who or what caused the universe to exist. There are certain things that can be discovered by scientific inquiry. There are other things that are beyond the capacity of simple observation to answer. Robert Jastrow, again, the astrophysicist, wrote, Science has proven that the universe expanded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? Was the universe created out of nothing, or was it gathered together out of pre-existing materials? And science cannot answer these questions. Claude J. Bauer wrote in Astronomy Magazine in August 1986, What precipitated the primeval fireball, and why did it happen? Perhaps that question is better left to theology, since there is no scientific answer we can understand. So at least some scientists freely admit that the question as to who created the universe and even how was it created exactly are beyond the realm of science. But God's word has revealed the answers to those questions, the questions that man is helpless to answer through his own limited methods of inquiry. Bible chronology allows for about 6,000 years since the time of the creation of Adam and Eve, and it's interesting that human history only goes back about 5,000 years or so, and then beyond that is basically speculation. Now, you probably heard that there are those who claim that human bones have been found that date tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of years, but that is pure speculation. There is no reliable way of dating those fossils. There's no reliable way of dating fossils, period, unless you witnessed the creature dying and you know precisely when it died and, and then are able to recover fossilized remain. There's no way of dating. There's no reliable way of dating the rocks. So nobody really knows the ages of bones that have been buried in the earth or rocks or the age of the earth itself. We do know, though, that human beings have been on the earth for around 6,000 years. And most of the events described in Genesis 1 are events that occurred about 6,000 years ago. And what Genesis 1 is about primarily is not the original creation of the universe, 
although that probably is what is referred to in Genesis 1 and verse 1, but as we will see, it is about a, another series of events that occurred later. Evidence gathered from the study of the Earth's mantle and studying the universe indicate that the Earth must be much older than 6,000 years. As I said, no one knows how much older, but there are indications that the universe, or, or the Earth rather, is older than 6,000 years. Some speculate that the Earth may be 5 billion years old. The Earth may be much younger. It could be even older. But it is almost without question considerably older than 6,000 years. The Bible does not teach that the Earth and the universe have existed for only 6,000 years, as some believe. If the Bible did teach that, then there would be an irreconcilable contradiction between Scripture and what appears to have been demonstrated by observable evidence. The Bible does not teach that the universe or the earth were created only 6,000 years ago. Notice in Genesis 1 verse 1 again, it says, In the beginning, as it's translated here, but in the Hebrew there is no word, there is no definite article in the Hebrew, so it could just as well be translated in a beginning. And there have been disputes about exactly what beginning is being discussed here. It could be understood as a statement hearkening to the original creation of the universe. And the term reshith, translated beginning, seems to strongly imply that this is indeed speaking of the very beginning of the creation as we know it, the creation of the physical heavens, including the stars, the sun, and the moon, and the universe itself, and the earth. Some Bible scholars consider it to be, however, a summary statement of what is discussed in the rest of the chapter, and that's possible, but I believe far less likely for several reasons. But the bulk of chapter 1 describes a reforming of a creation that had become chaotic or a ruin. The Bible teaches that God did in fact create all things. And as we've seen, that it did have a beginning in time. Notice again in Colossians 1 and verse 16. Colossians 1 and verse 16, it says, speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, By him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. So the Bible clearly teaches that God created everything. He created the earth and the heavens and everything that's in them, even that which is invisible. And in Hebrews 1 and verse 2, Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says that God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. The worlds here is from the Greek word ion, which properly means an age, and so it could be translated through the ages, it's plural in the Greek, which also has to do with the earth and the universe through time. But 
The Bible does not tell us the precise time when the universe was created, that is, how many years ago it was created. It does not tell us its age. So the Bible does not tell us exactly how the universe is. But it does tell us that God created it. And in verse 2 of Genesis 1, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If verse 1 is speaking of the original creation, which I believe it most likely is, then there is a gap between a time gap between verse 1 and the rest of the chapter. Now, this has been ridiculed as the gap theory, but this understanding harmonizes what the Bible tells us and the evidence gathered from scientific investigation, and it is consistent with what the Bible teaches about creation. The Bible does not say the universe was created out of nothing, Quite the contrary, it tells us precisely what the universe was created out of and of what it consists. Notice here it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And what is pictured is a watery chaos. An earth covered by water that was devoid of light and of life. And it introduces God's spirit here as the creative power. As we go on through the chapter, we will read where it tells us God said. In verse 3, for example, it says, Then God said. And this is repeated a number of times throughout Genesis 1, 10 times actually, where it tells us that God said. And then things happen. Now, we read earlier that Jesus Christ is the Word, spoken of as the Word of God, and He is God. We also have read that Jesus Christ is the one through whom God created the earth and the universe. He's the one who did the speaking here as the spokesman, so to speak, and the one who actually personally created the universe through His Word or His command. Over in Psalm 33, Psalm 33 and verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So notice how this dovetails with what we read in Genesis 1 as well as John chapter 1. It was the word of God through which the heavens were made. Is through the command of God and the power of His Word. That may seem like a strange concept in a way, but it perhaps won't be so strange when we understand that the Word of God is the expression of His power and His Spirit. In fact, the Word of God is Spirit. Over in John 6, verse 63. John 6, and verse 63. It says, It is the Spirit who gives life, or which gives life as it should be. Notice it is the Spirit which gives life. The Spirit of God is the source of life, both physical life as well as eternal life, ultimately. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, said Jesus, 
and they are life. Notice he said, the words that I speak are spirit. So when we read about God commanding something to be done, when he spoke and it was done, it was the power of God's spirit being expressed. The word of God is the spirit of God given specific form and expression. And the spirit of God is power. It is force. It is energy emanating from the person of God. Over in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we see that the Spirit of God is power. The Greek word for power used here is dynamis, which can refer to inherent power that regenerates itself endlessly. And that is the nature of God's spirit. It is endless, unlimited power. By the way, the word dynamis is where we get the English words dynamo and dynamic and similar words which are used in connection, of course, with generating electricity and so forth. In the Bible, God's Spirit is likened to wind, to water, and to oil, which are all sources of power or energy. Even today, wind, water, and oil are our primary sources of energy. And these are what are used metaphorically in the Bible to represent God's Spirit. The power behind the creation of the universe, the physical universe, is the power of God's Spirit. Over in Hebrews 11 and verse 1, Hebrews 11 and verse one, verse 3, rather, it says, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Now notice it does not say that the things which are seen were made from nothing. That's not what it says. It says that they were not made of things which are visible. But it tells us that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The Bible nowhere tells us that the universe was created out of nothing. What it tells us is that it was created out of God's spirit through the power of the spirit of God, which is invisible. You cannot see wind, but you can feel its force and you can see the consequences of its power. You cannot see electricity, but if you plug an electric motor into a socket powered by electricity and turn on the switch, you can feel the power of the electricity turning the motor and perhaps turning a fan blade or something else. You cannot see magnetism, but if you take a magnet and put it near some iron filings or even some other object that is sensitive to magnetism, such as a piece of iron, you can feel its energy and power. In fact, we have an antenna over here that is being held to a an iron rail by a magnet. You cannot see gravity, but gravity is what is holding you to the Earth's surface as the Earth turns on its axis. If it were not for gravity, you would you wouldn't be here. You would have flown off into space by the force of inertia. 
Gravity is what keeps things on the earth earthbound, but you can't see it. You cannot see any of these forces or powers, but you can feel or see their effects. And you cannot see God's spirit either. But that power is revealed, among other things, in the existence of the universe. When you look at the universe, when you look at the stars, when you look at the ground beneath your feet, you're looking at evidence of the power and the spirit of God. Only in the last few decades has modern man come to understand the equivalence of matter and energy and that one can be transformed into the other. That energy can become matter under certain conditions and vice versa. That's what led to the development of the atomic and hydrogen bombs. The discovery that matter can be turned into energy and vice versa. And so when a hydrogen bomb explodes, a tiny bit of matter, and it's really not very much, is being turned into energy. And that shows you the kind of power that is bound up in material things that you can see. The writers of Scripture understood long ago that the stars in the heavens and that all creation is a manifestation of the power of God's Spirit. Notice in Job 26 and verse 13. Job 26 and verse 13. By His Spirit, He adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. This is probably a reference to a certain astro astronomical events that relate to the spirit world as well. But it says, by His Spirit, He adorned the heavens. In other words, the stars are there through the power of God's Spirit. In Colossians 1 and verse 16, Colossians 1 and verse 16, it says, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, as we read, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and in him all things consist all things have their being in and through Jesus Christ through the power of his spirit the spirit of God back over in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep the Hebrew word translated was here is Haya, which has a variety of meanings having to do with to exist, to be, or to become, or to come to pass. And this word can be translated was. It could also be translated and often is translated became. In fact, it's translated became 64 times in the King James Version of the Bible. And it's translated became nine times in the book of Genesis, the same word. So it could as easily be translated, the earth became without form. One place, just for reference, is in chapter 2 and verse 7, where the same word is translated, became. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The same word, Hayah. So the context 
must determine how the word is to be translated as with many words when one is translated from one language to another. The word translated here without form is tohu, which means to lie waste, to be desolate, to be worthless or vain. So it could as easily be translated, the earth became a waste, a desolation. The same word is used in Isaiah 45, verse 18. Notice that scripture in Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, or in a, as a desolation or a ruin, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Notice it says that God did not create the earth a desolation, but we read that it became a desolation. The earth was created to be inhabited. And by the way, there are many unique facts about the earth that make it apparent that it was, in fact, designed as a habitation for physical life. The earth is not the way it is by accident. It is specifically designed. And there are many, many factors that go into making the earth a suitable habitation for life, which I won't go into now. There, there are whole books that have been written about that. But it was not originally created to be a ruin, but it became a ruin. The word void here in chapter 1 and verse 2 is bohu and we see these two words used in other scriptures that show that they are conditions or at least can be conditions resulting from sin notice in jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 23 jeremiah 4 and verse 23 this is talking about god sending destruction and ruin on the land of Israel because of their sins. And in verse 23 it says, I beheld the earth and indeed it was without form and void. These are the exact same terms used in Genesis 1 and verse 2. It was without form and void and the heavens had no light. We see the same features described here of what would happen to the earth as a consequence of man's sins. In Isaiah 24 and verse 1, Isaiah is prophesying about, again, about destruction that God will send on the earth because of sin. It says, Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. So what we're reading about in Genesis 1 and verse 2 is an earth that had become a ruin and a desolation because of sin. Other scriptures show that the angels were present when the earth was created and they rejoiced over in Job chapter 38. Now, there weren't any human beings there on the day that the earth was originally created, but evidently there were angels 
Because notice it says here in Job 38 verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And angels are likened to sons of God and stars in the scriptures. And this is what is, is being discussed here. In various scriptures, we find that there were three archangels, three archangels that are mentioned in the Bible. These are the very highest of the angels. And one of those archangels rebelled against God. He was on the earth. And the Bible indicates that he was given authority over the earth and that he had a contingent of angels with him consisting of a third of the angelic host. And these angels were led into rebellion by Satan. They mounted a rebellion against God. I won't go into all the scriptures. It would take a, a sermon or more in and of itself. But as a result of the rebellion, they were cast back down to the earth and imprisoned in a realm of darkness, as we read about in Genesis one, and that's what we see pictured in Genesis 1 and verse 2, a world that is completely dark as it, at its surface, that is a ruin and a desolation, and no life on it that is no physical life. The demons were on the earth in this dark void, but there was no physical life on the earth. It had become unsuitable for life. It was a ruin. And it had become a dark and watery grave for any physical life that existed before. It was destroyed. The world had become completely flooded and was dark due to a thick band of clouds that girdled the earth completely. Notice in Job 38 verse 8, Job 38 verse 8 says, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? The sea here is pictured to something that's bursting forth and had covered, as we read in Genesis 1 and verse 2, covered the surface of the earth. Later on, it was confined, as we will see. When I made the clouds its garment, notice the clouds are spoken of as a garment here for the waters of the earth and thick darkness its swaddling band. This is picturing the conditions. This is speaking of the conditions pictured in Genesis 1 and verse 2. The earth was covered with clouds and thick darkness due to the thick cloud cover that allowed no light to penetrate to the earth. Now, the stars and the sun were already in existence at this time unlike what many people believe. What made the earth dark was not the lack of a sun to provide light. What made it dark were the clouds which enveloped the earth. And notice it says that the thick darkness was a swaddling band for the earth. This pictures a spherical earth. The word garment here in this verse is from the Hebrew word labush, which means to wrap around, to wrap around. 
swaddling band is a swaddling cloth, which means to wrap, to bind, to envelop, or to surround. So it is picturing an earth around which something could be wrapped. Not a flat earth, but a round earth. What do you wrap a swaddling band around? Something that is basically round or, or cylindrical or spherical. So the, the Bible does not teach and never did teach that the earth is flat. It clearly teaches that the earth is a sphere. Notice in Isaiah 40 and verse 22 again. Isaiah 40 and verse 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. This word could also be translated the sphere of the earth. It is he who sits above the sphere or the circle of the earth. In Job 9 and verse 4, Job 9 verse 4, it says, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who is hardened against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know when he overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth out of its place. Notice the earth is not something that is immovable as was taught by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. It says he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. Well, how would that be done? One way it could be done is by causing a thick cloud cover to cover the earth completely so there's no sunrise and you cannot see the stars. And again, it says, He alone spreads out the heavens and treads in the waves of the sea. God manifested his anger by shutting off the earth from the light of the sun and the stars. Psalm 104, notice we read about the destruction and then the recreation of life on the earth, physical life. Psalm 104 and verse 23, or verse 24 rather. O Lord, how manifold are your works in wisdom. You have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions, this great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that Leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them they gather in. You open your hand. They are filled with good. You hide your face. They are troubled. You take away their breath. They die and return to their dust. So here it shows living things being sustained by God. But then God hides his face and they are troubled and their breath is taken away and they die, they perish. But then in verse 30, it says, you send forth your spirit and they are created. This is what we're reading about in the book of Genesis chapter 1. An earth where physical life had perished and then God sent forth his spirit and created physical life anew on the earth. And it says, and you renew the face of the earth. So the darkness we read about in Genesis 1 and verse 2 is written from the perspective of one standing on the earth where there was complete darkness. It does not mean there was no light anywhere, but it means there was no light on the earth and the sun could not penetrate beyond its cloud cover. Well, I don't have 
much more time to go into other details of things that were done here as we read through the first chapter of Genesis. But we read that this physical restoration of life was accomplished in six days. Now, some have tried to read into this some way of reconciling it with Darwinian evolution, making it long periods of time and so forth, but it's very clear where it speaks of the evening and the morning that it's speaking of literal 24-hour days. And we read in chapter 1 and verse 11, God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed in it is in itself on the earth. Notice that the plants that God created yield fruit after their kind. In other words, they reproduce according to the characteristics of the parent. The idea of Darwinism is that random mutations account for all the various life forms on the earth, but this is directly contrary to how life works, how reproductive activity works. Here is a statement from a book on genetics called Principles of Genetics by Gardner and Snustad. This is a textbook that has been used in colleges to teach genetics. As far as I know, these individuals do not claim to be creationists. Nevertheless, what they say is quite revealing. They say here, in all cases, reproduction entails the faithful transmission of the genetic information of the parents to the progeny. In all cases, reproduction entails the faithful transmission of the genetic information of the parents to the progeny. In this same book, speaking of the destructiveness of mutations and how they affect reproduction, Here's a statement they make. An analogy can be made with any complex, carefully engineered machine. If you randomly modify any one essential component, for example, of a watch or an automobile, it seldom performs as well as it did prior to the random change. What they're saying is that random mutations are destructive and if they are very significant, they will wind up causing the organism, which any physical creature is really a collection of complex machines, and that organism will fail because the machines won't work. If you rip the engine out of an automobile, you're all, all you're going to have is a useless hunk of metal and plastic or whatever else it's made of. Or you don't even have to take out the whole engine, just take out the drive shaft or take off the uh, distributor. Really, you don't have to take off very much to render the machine completely inoperable and useless. And the same is true of the physical machines that cause our bodies to work. What is known of genetics does not support evolution. Numerous other scientists, scholars, and others 
just applying facts and logic, have observed that the complexity of living organisms precludes the explanation of physical life as a result of gradual changes along the lines of Darwinian evolution. In writing about the mathematical impossibility of random selection leading to the development of even one protein of the many thousands on which the existence of biological life depends, the well-known scientists Fred Hoyle and Shandra Wickramasinghe wrote, and I'm quoting here, the probability of life originating at random is so utterly minuscule as to make the random concept absurd. For life to have originated on the earth, it would be necessary that quite explicit instructions should have been provided for its assembly. The theory that life was assembled by an intelligence is vastly more probable than the alternative of being the correct explanation. Indeed, such a theory is so obvious that one wonders why it is not widely accepted as being self-evident. The reasons are psychological rather than scientific. And these are just a couple of many very accomplished scientists who could be quoted to the same effect. And as I said, you don't even need to be a scientist. You just can look at some of the facts of creation and use common logic to arrive, arrive at the same conclusion. There certainly is a potential for variation built into physical creatures, and they can be bred various characteristics, but a dog is always going to be a dog. A cat will always be a cat, and a chicken will be a chicken. It won't be some completely different kind of creature. Finally, we read in Genesis 1 about the creation of human beings. We already read how God created human beings in his own image, and he created them male and female. He created them a family. God is the author of the family, and he is the author of marriage. And he did not create marriage to be between two men or two women or several men and several women or whatever. He created the family unit based on a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, which also pictures the relationship of Christ with the church in a metaphorical way. Today, as for 6,000 years, mankind is denying the God who created the earth and all that is in it, including human beings. But in due time, Christ will set his hand to intervene to save flesh from utter destruction. We are at a very perilous time in history. And while the world is not totally aflame in conflict, there's plenty of conflict going on and even more conflict on the horizon as we see the hatred and the, the violence mounting various places on the earth, the threats that are being mounted against people of differing beliefs and faiths and political ideologies and so forth. And the peace that we, the relative peace that at least some of us are enjoying now is not going to last indefinitely. Notice what Jesus said over in Matthew 24 and verse 22. And he spoke of 
things happening prior to his return, including wars and rumors of wars and persecution and so forth. Matthew 24 and verse 22. He said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The time is coming when entirety of humanity, indeed all flesh on the earth, will be threatened with destruction. And man now has the capability to erase all life from the earth several times over. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ will intervene. The Bible tells us that in the meantime, the earth will become, much of it will become desolate and much of the earth will become a ruin. That the very heavens themselves will be shaken and the stars and the, uh, the, stars and the sun and the moon will not give their light leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice, notice what he said here in, in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall down from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. But then it says then in verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Jesus Christ will set up his kingdom on the earth, just as he was on the earth at the time of Adam and Eve. And the earth will be restored to its pristine Eden-like condition under the guidance and rulership of Jesus Christ. As we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel 36 and verse 33, Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of being desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places, planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. So we, in, a, in a way we see history repeating itself. The Satan rebelled and the angels rebelled and the earth became desolate and then was remade by God. So once again, through sin, the earth is going to become a desolation and a ruin. But God has promised that he will intervene and restore it. Let's pray that Christ's kingdom will be established on the earth soon.